Welcome back to another episode of the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelsang. We are broadcasting from just outside Washington, D.C. Please check out our show notes today for more information about Smithsonian Associates and their wonderful programs. The Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series is dedicated to fostering thoughtful dialogues on subjects that matter. Today, we have a special guest, Smithsonian Associate, Dr. Catherine Kramer Brownwell, an Associate Professor of History at Purdue University. Dr. Brownell is here to discuss her new book, 24-7 Politics, Cable Television, and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. Dr. Catherine Kramer Brownell will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. So please check out our show notes today for specifics on Dr. Brownell's presentation titled 24-7 Politics, Cable Television, and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. As television began to overtake the political landscape in the 1960s, network broadcast companies bolstered by powerful lobbying interests dominated screens across the nation. Yet, over the next three decades, the explosion of a different technology, cable, changed all of this. Drawing on her new book, 24-7 Politics, Cable Television, and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News, Dr. Catherine Kramer Brownell tells us the story of how the cable industry worked with political leaders to create an entirely new approach to television, one that tethered politics to profits and divided and distracted Americans by feeding their appetite for entertainment, frequently at the expense of fostering responsible citizenship. Dr. Catherine Kramer Brownell argues today that cable television itself is not to blame for today's rampant polarization and scandal politics. It's the international restructuring of television as a political institution. Dr. Catherine Kramer Brownell will describe to us today how cable innovations from C-SPAN coverage of congressional debates in the 1980s to MTV's foray into presidential politics in the 1990s, all of this took on network broadcasting using market forces, giving rise to a more decentralized media world. Dr. Catherine Kramer Brownell reveals to us how cable became an unstoppable medium for political communication that prioritized cult followings, and loyalty to individual brands fundamentally reshaped party politics and in the process sowed the seeds of democratic upheaval. Dr. Catherine Kramer Brownell also examines how cable created new possibilities for anti-establishment voices and opened a pathway to political prominence for seemingly unlikely figures like Donald Trump by playing to narrow audiences and cultivating division instead of common ground. And she'll show how people became tools of the cable networks. The reading I wanted to do is from the beginning of chapter nine. And it talks about how cable became a tool for political communication for many campaigns and candidates who were were desperate, that didn't know what to do, and so they tried cable as a last resort. And this is something that the industry really capitalizes on to gain regulatory favor at the same time that these representatives and senators were debating cable legislation. So it comes from Chapter 9, A Political Tool. 
Barney Frank was desperate. The fast-talking Massachusetts congressman with his trademark thick-rimmed glasses had won a congressional seat in 1980 with 52% of the vote. But two years later, the freshman Democrat found himself in an uphill battle for his political life. Massachusetts had lost a representative after the 1980 census, which forced Frank into a district against a veteran moderate Republican, Margaret Heckler, who had won her first term in 1966. The new district covered more than her more of her voting base, and she emerged as a frontrunner in the race between two incumbents. Frank was ready to embrace any idea that would boost his campaign and help him win a winning coalition by appealing to new voters in the redrawn district. At that point, Frank recalled, if someone had told me matchbox covers were an underutilized campaign resource, I would have been doing that. So he was all ears when an up-and-coming media consultant, John Florescu, pitched a no-cost but untested strategy, cable casting. Frank decided it was what he called a quote-unquote no-lose situation and quote, worth an effort even if it wasn't likely to be successful. And so he said yes. Newt Gingrich, meanwhile, was frustrated. The history professor turned conservative firebrand had pledged to shake things up on Capitol Hill and in the Republican Party if he was elected to Congress in 1978. In one campaign speech to college Republicans in Atlanta, he pushed them to, quote, be nasty and voice oppositional opinions loudly. Quote, fight, scrap, issue a press release, go make a speech, end quote, if they wanted to be taken seriously in Congress, he told them. When he arrived in Washington as a freshman congressman, he found several other young and aggressive allies, notably Robert Walker from Pennsylvania and John Vincent or Vin Weber from Minnesota, who also viewed politics as a media-driven field of battle, not a world of governance that required compromise. As Gingrich scribbled on a strategy notepad, quote, this is a confrontation business. And yet, they were a radical fringe of the minority party in the House. How could they force the Republican Party to listen to their ideas? They were willing to experiment with anything that could give them a platform, including C-SPAN. If only they could figure out how to stand out during the televised legislative hearings and floor proceedings each day. Their solution? Using cable to build a national profile by flinging red meat rhetoric and seeding political discontent. They hoped this would engage and embolden a vocal sliver of the electorate, craving a GOP with sharper elbows. Frank and Gingrich turned to cable television out of necessity, but their different strategies exposed their contrasting goals and foreshadowed alternative paths for using cable television that their respective parties would later pursue. Frank, the Democrat, wanted to use cable to connect with populations he wasn't currently reaching by meeting people where they were, watching cable programs. As Florescu would later explain, voters increasingly felt, quote, alienated from politics, end quote. And so they didn't automatically turn on political programming. Campaigns had to go to them, he emphasized, with a tailored message and the toolbox of entertainment in hopes of engaging television viewers. The Republican representative from Atlanta had a different goal. He also recognized growing voter alienation from politics, but he wanted to turn it into smoldering outrage among cable subscribers to boost his national profile. 
It was not about selling policies or connecting with his own constituents. Rather, he believed that raising a ruckus would elevate the conservative fringe inside the Republican Party itself and help them secure enough power to force GOP leadership to pay attention and adopt similar tactics. Both approaches transformed cable into a political tool, one that notably muddied the waters among public affairs programming, entertainment, and partisan propaganda. By elevating their political status through cable television, members of Congress across the political spectrum also expanded the legitimacy of the cable business itself, even paving the way for its deregulation, something that finally happened in 1984 with overwhelming bipartisan support. That, of course, is our guest today, Smithsonian Associate Dr. Catherine Kramer Brown, reading from her new book, 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, Dr. Catherine Kramer Brown. Dr. Catherine Kramer Brown, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'll tell you, this is... Um, it's it's a very interesting time in in our country's history. Uh, your book, Twenty Four Seven Politics: Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News, comes at just the right time. You're going to be speaking at Smithsonian Associates coming up. I want to get into all of this, including your your excellent new book. But why don't we start there at the start and and tell us a little bit about what you'll be talking about at your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation? Just just give us a brief sense of that. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to the conversation and to sharing my research that's at the core of this book. And so I'll talk about how cable television emerged as the powerful medium that we recognize today. It wasn't always that way. It was it, Initially, it was a very small industry uh, that just expanded the reach of broadcasting. But over the course of four decades and a lot of political battles, cable television eventually knocked down the gatekeeping of network broadcast television and the monopoly that it had. By convincing political leaders to take a market-driven approach to television, both in how they use cable to communicate and how they wrote the rules that structured the industry's operations. Thank you for that. I, this this is just going to be a fascinating. I, I've been excited to talk to you. I know your presentation at Smithsonian will be an exciting one. I know our audience is just really going to enjoy this. So let's talk about those those political battles that took place in this this emerging medium, that being cable news and the twenty four seven nature of it. And 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 in the book, you you talk about how the development of cable news kind of shifted the political discourse in America. I wonder if you tell us how how it did that, and maybe give us a couple of instances where. Um, where the shift has been particularly um, detri- detrimental to, to our society and, and maybe even beneficial at the same time. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the, the really the, the interesting things that cable does. It's really significant mm-hmm. that brings in these, these big transformations is that cable television is all about narrow casting, appealing to small segments of the population um, and kind of creating 
a lifestyle and a loyalty almost to those those subscribers. So those people who love golf would watch the Golf Channel. Those people <laughs> who are passionate about sports would watch ESPN. Younger audiences that loved music would feel connected to one another and distant from their parents by tuning into MTV. And so it's kind of this this loyalty that that cable introduces and the concept of narrowcasting. Ultimately, over a course of several decades, uh, the cable industry looking to advance, to grow its business, needed to cultivate favor uh, with elected officials. And one of the things that it did to do that is to teach elected officials how they, too, could use narrowcasting to their benefit, how they could think about the demographics of American voters and appeal to what they called the right voters, those who were more passionate um, and those who would you know, turn out to vote, who uh, would donate more money, would get more involved. Um, and, and so they, they started, they encouraged people to think narrowly about audiences. This is very different um, than uh, political communication strategies previously. That employed by Franklin Roosevelt, who went on radio and thought about appealing to broad audiences. Even the name broadcasting is very much a finding common ground. And, and so I think that, you know, what cable does is it introduces this concept of what if we slice and dice the electorate? What if we eschew these uh, consensus-creating opportunities um, and, and think about ways to play up differences? And so at first, this was seen as an incredibly important thing that could advance democracy because that consensus-making machine of radio and television broadcasting was incredibly exclusionary. It overwhelmingly prioritized the point of view of elite white men in newsrooms and, um, and even those who are creating entertainment programming. And so conservatives and women and minorities all were pushing for more opportunities to get their perspectives um, in, um, in, in the television landscape. And so at, and at first, cable really offered this opportunity for more diversity um, on the dial that uh, people, again, across the political spectrum saw as really essential to pursuing the changes that they wanted, they were organizing to introduce in American society and politics. But of course, what really happens is that time and time again, cable becomes a tool to divide uh, American, uh, the American electorate by design and to polarize them as a strategy to winning elections. And so a great example of this is someone like Newt Gingrich, um, who, you know, who sees cable as a way to stoke outrage and get people angry, not necessarily to inform them, but to turn them against one another as a strategy to, to gain more, of, more power for himself um, and the, the more conservative fringes of the Republican Party. Yeah, just a fascinating time. I remember so well, so vividly, you know, feeling as though cable were just speaking directly to me. I want my MTV. It was almost like it was a personal kind of mm -hmm. a approach and this idea of of narrow casting. You flash forward um, now, you know, many years ahead. I'm I'm older, and it seems as though cable news has um, has targeted some of our Smithsonian audience. Those of us, many of whom are are over the age of sixty. I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about how you think the strategies of cable news has evolved to cater to some of these different audiences and um, maybe they've even alienated some at the same time. 
Yeah, and that personalization of of entertainment programming, of sports programming, and of the news is really a product of the cable landscape, and and that can that can be great as a consumer, right? You get exactly what you want, mm-hmm. um, but as a citizen. It, it poses some challenges to becoming an informed citizen about democracy if you're only getting news that's personalized towards you. And this, you know, CNN launches in, um, in 1980 and it introduces this concept of nonstop news, news that will go around the clock. Um, and it also introduces the concept of news as a profit, that news can make you money. And through in the, the, the network broadcasting era, uh, television newsrooms did make money. And so, the, but they always framed their money making, they, they tried to hide the fact that it was a profit center mm. and really highlighted that the, the news was their civic contribution. Mm-hmm. That it's the ways in which that they were delivering for the public um, information they needed in exchange for using the airwaves um, and in exchange for their monopoly status. Well, CNN takes on a completely different idea with the news and says that it's going to eschew, you know, the expensive operations of having an anchor like Walter Cronkite and instead make breaking news the star. And it really takes um, about 16 years for a competitor to emerge to CNN. And that happens in 1996. Uh, with MSNBC launching and then Fox News launching in 1996. Then all of a sudden, um, it's not about news around the clock, but it's about news from a different brand. And there's a lot of discussion about the branding of news that leads us to kind of that personalization of the news. Initially, MSNBC wanted to target a younger audience. Uh, They partnered with Microsoft Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, had an online way that people could engage. They, They said that they were going to use the internet to kind of create more engagement uh, with this younger audience. Fox from the beginning had a conservative audience in mind um, and really wanted to appeal uh, to those people who listen to Rush Limbaugh, for example, on Mm -hmm. talk radio. Um, And so so it really evolves that all of a sudden the news takes on um, this more personalized, a branded effort. So it's not necessarily about delivering information um, that the public needs to know to be informed citizens, um, but it's uh, very much about entertaining them and keeping them loyal to that particular brand of the news. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And along the way, you know, there must have been some editorial considerations, particularly, you know, journalistic or or even ethical. And I wonder if you touch on those because you you kind of make reference to that in the book that along this journey, you know, there have been some, you know, softening of standards, perhaps. Yes. And I think that, you know, I want to make it clear to, to listeners and that, you know, the, the age of network, telev- of network broadcast television and those newsrooms, that they, they didn't always deliver for democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, again, uh, they're very exclusionary. And I don't want to romanticize this period in which, you know, um, media corporations had this civic interest and civic role to play. Uh, but there was this expectation because of FCC regulations that the news had to deliver for the public interest. Um, and there's a tremendous debate about how they failed to do so. But at least there is this expectation that's there. Um, and, and there was a lot of debate among um, network news executives and journal- television journalists and anchors about how they would do that. And it was a serious goal, even if they failed in the execution of that frequently. 
along the way with cable television, um, there there's an, a different type of public sphere that emerges, one that is not so much as commercialized, but more privatized. And increasingly, those FCC, any any kind of requirements to serve the, the public interest start to fade away. And indeed, the public interest is increasingly defined as the consumer interest. And so, over the course of several decades, as both parties embrace deregulation, both parties embrace the idea that the marketplace will deliver for American democracy, some of those ethical debates about how to inform the public and some of the responsibilities um, that um, news organizations have really start to fade and the focus becomes more on the bottom line um, and, and uh, what will make money. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. Our guest today is Dr. Catherine Kramer-Brownwell. Dr. Catherine Kramer-Brownwell is a Smithsonian Associate, will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. Please check out the website for more details about Catherine Kramer-Brownwell's presentation at Smithsonian Associates, as well as her new book, titled 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. The book is getting great reviews, and I've certainly enjoyed it. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Kramer Bromo, for sharing it with me. I'll just read a review from Margaret Omara, who is the author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. She says, with vivid storytelling and revealing insight, Catherine Kramer Brownwell traces how a scrappy band of political outsiders became Washington power players, reshaping how Americans watch television, understand the news, and participate in their democracy. Great review. There are many other people lauding the book, and um, I want to highly recommend this to our audience as well as your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. Let's talk for a second about something you, you kind of refer to a little bit just in, our, in, your, in your last answer, and that is the deregulation of the industry itself. And I want to talk about diversity and minority media ownership. The book, again, is wonderful. And, and in Chapter 7, you have this great photo of President Jimmy Carter, a favorite of mine. Um, and he's pictured there along with um, it's a it's a photo from Cablevision magazine. He he's pictured there with uh, cable industry icon William Johnson. And you talk a little bit about um, the deregulation subject in Chapter Seven, referencing the Carter administration's uh, trend towards deregulation of the cable industry, and how that served as a stumbling block, really, towards include towards inclusion and encouraging black participation and ownership in cable television. How did that kind of work? It It's almost contrary to, to one another. Yes. And that's something that Carter's administration, members of Carter's administration drew attention to, you know, and I think it's, you know, that we have a 
a tendency to associate deregulation with Republicans and conservatives. Mm-hmm. But Carter's administration is so transformative in ushering in the deregulation of the media landscape, uh, both television and radio, and, and, and many other industries as well. And so I think it's a reminder that both parties, people across the political spectrum, are buying into this notion that the marketplace can deliver. And, and, um, and this is something that continues to, to permeate the, the Democratic Party over the next two decades. And of course, it's uh, Bill Clinton and Al Gore that sign in a major piece of legislation to deregulate the entire media industry with the 1996 Telecommunications Act. But what, one of um, a, a member of Carter's administration pushed back on that and highlighted that, you know, just opening up the marketplace is not going to necessarily serve the, the, the professed goals of the administration to advance equality and equity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the central problem is that relying just on the marketplace to deliver for social justice or for diversity initiatives ignores the fact that the marketplace is not just this free exchange of ideas. Um, Even though that's a very popular term, the marketplace of ideas, in reality, those... the scales are very weighted, um, and those with wealth and influence um, amass more and more power. And so deregulation actually created a landscape in which big corporations got bigger. They started to buy up the smaller cable operators like William Johnson. Um, they had more credit to bid for cable franchises, which is the, the agreement that companies had to have with the local governments. And they would throw in a lot of enticements about um, sometimes it was actually just signing bonus type things. Um, other times it was promises to, to build um, infrastructure that the local city needed. Big companies with a lot of credit could make those promises. Um, smaller operators looking to break into the game could not. And so that's what happened with William Johnson, even though he's an early black cable operator that Carter wanted to celebrate because he embodied um, um, minority media ownership. In the end, he could not compete with these bigger corporations, and he sold out to them uh, to to make money off of um, when when he could not actually grow his business. He decided to sell um, like many smaller operators at the time. What's been the biggest impact here, you know, in blending news and entertainment on this responsible citizenship that that we all should be a part of. There's this great moment that I end the book with, and it's a conversation between Walter Cronkite and John Malone. John Malone is the head of the most powerful cable company, TCI, at the time. And they they talk about, um, you know, this, this very question that cable has created all of these different perspectives that can compete with one another. And um, all in all of these different entertainment programs that can compete with people's attention for the news. And, and you know, John Malone defends it. And he says, I think that the consumer will, will deliver for democracy. Um, and Walter Cronkite says, I'm not so sure. I think that we may have a lot of entertained citizens, maybe a lot of really good golfers, but I'm worried that our citizens are getting the information that they need to, to, for democracy to function, to make informed choices um, at the ballot box. 
And in the, they get into this this debate about can the will the consumer demand accuracy and um uh and and will it demand this information? And that's what John Malone argues. And Walter Cronkite says, I'm not quite so sure. And I think that's part of that's that's the shift is that we have uh, many entertained consumers, but not necessarily informed citizens. And in, um, in the news, I think there's this concept of the news that it is going to offer you um, information that perhaps you need to know. Maybe it's not everything, but it's going to be relevant um, for, for making your decisions as, uh, as citizens. But in fact, a newer version of the news has emerged, one in which it's very much about infotainment, not information. And so we kind of have this traditional idea of the news that still triumphs, even though the reality of 24-7 news uh, stations has completely changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, give us some advice. Uh, you know, you're, you're very busy, and we, sh- we sure appreciate your time and, and you generously reading uh, from your book. Uh, Let's wrap up with just a final question and maybe give us a, a couple tips or a little bit of advice about how to be better critical consumers of the news because the landscape is evolving as we speak. We're in the throes of another election cycle. We're going to be faced with a lot of this, kind of this blurring of entertainment and, and news. What should we look out for? That's such a great question. And I... I talk with my students about this all the time, as media is going to become even more and more fragmented and divided, especially with the introduction of streaming services, that there is the choice will expand even more uh, than, than we saw this dramatic expansion under cable television. And, and I think it'll continue to be more divided, probably more frivolous. Um, and trying to divide and distract us because this is by design. Uh, This is something that can generate clicks and can generate those ratings today. Um, But good information is out there. And so, yes, there's a lot of bad information. Um, There's a lot of uh, dangerous information that's out there, misinformation and disinformation. But there's tremendous journalism that's happening. It's happening on podcasts, perhaps, and in different outlets. And so, Look, look for that. Look for that information. Um, look, don't rely just on one source. Uh, think critically about how something is being presented. What what perspectives are prioritized? What is left out? Uh, think about who they're using, who they're turning to um, for sources. What kind of facts are being presented? How they're showing their work. Uh, it's something I always tell my students. I want to see your footnotes. I want to see your citations. And I think that we should hold media accountable for how they're, they're, what they're bringing into the table, how they're sourcing um, 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 their, their stories. And so I think media literacy, you know, being critical thinking, turning to multiple sources, thinking about choices, thinking about what is included, what is excluded. Um, um, those are all things that can help us be better media consumers and better citizens. So helpful. Dr. Catherine Kramer Brownwell has been our guest today. Dr. Catherine Kramer-Bromwell will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. Please check the website for more details. And Catherine Kramer-Bromwell has written the new book, 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. Just an excellent political and historical perspective offered in the book about news versus entertainment, the impact on political 
discourse, all of these various target demographics that are being narrowcasted to. Great, great work. Congratulations on the book, uh, Dr. Kramer Brown-Rowan. Thanks for being our guest today, talking a little bit about um, this important subject, especially uh, during during these days of, of upcoming um, heated, I'm sure, on cable news networks, mm-hmm. political debate. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me again and for the conversation. Thank you. My thanks to Dr. Katherine Kramer Brownell for joining today's show. Dr. Katherine Kramer Brownell will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. The title of her presentation is 24-7 Politics, Cable Television, and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. Dr. Katherine Kramer Brownell has written the new book, available at Apple Books, 24-7 Politics, Cable Television, and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. Please check that out. My thanks always to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful (laughs) Not Hold Better Show audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well, be safe, and let's talk about better. The Not Hold Better Show. Thanks, everybody. We will see you next week. Check out Smithsonian Associates. All of this will be in our show notes today. Thanks. Thanks.